Well, as Jesus moves inexorably toward the cross, our gospel reading on this fifth Sunday in Lent points us once again to Jesus revealing more of his true identity. But in ways conventional wisdom would never anticipate. It's important as we look at our reading from John 12, verses 20 through 36, to consider, to consider it in the broader context of John 12, because the setting John gives us for the illuminating encounter between Jesus and the Greeks is the immense tension with the Jewish authorities just after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. Jesus had become enormously popular to the point that the Pharisees had, for just a moment, appeared to lose any hope of silencing him. So before we get to verse 20, I'd like to spend just a moment walking particularly through the eight preceding verses, verses 12 through 19, because they reveal a crucial turning point in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. The revelation and the acknowledgement that he is, in fact, the king of Israel. He's embracing it now, not pushing it away as he did, as we heard in last week's reading from John 6.15, perceiving them after he'd fed 5,000 people, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. What does Jesus do? He withdraws from them and goes to a place by himself. He's embracing his kingship now, and and not just the king of Israel, but the king of the whole world. Watch how this comes clear in John 12, verses 12 and 13. Pardon me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're quoting Psalm 118, 25, and 26. Save us, O Lord, which is what Hosanna means. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What they're doing is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the very nightmare that the Pharisees and chief priests had feared. The question is, will Jesus walk away from this approbation as he did in John 6.15, or will he embrace it? And we don't have to wait long to get the answer in John 12, verses 14 through 16. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. No, Jesus didn't walk away from it. In fact, he intensified it by choosing to fulfill a prophecy everyone there would have known, from Zechariah 9.9 about the king of Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's saying by this action, yes, 
I am the King of Israel. I am the Messiah. And he's doing it at the most explosively dangerous moment. And now we see how John weaves the story together to make it plain that the kingship of Jesus is more than just a local Jewish tribal kingship, but that he is, in fact, the king of the world. It starts in John 12, 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he was called, when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to see him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Those who hated Jesus continue to speak more than they know. The whole world, really? That seems like kind of an odd thing to say at the beginning of Passover, a strictly Jewish festival in Jerusalem. Or is it? And that brings us to the part of the chapter we read today, beginning with verse 20. And who would show up right at this moment but some Greeks, kind of out of the blue? It says in John 12, verses 20 and 22, Now among, these, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him. Of course, they find the only disciple with a Greek name. Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Amazing. Greeks are asking to see Jesus at the Passover celebration. But why here? Why now? I think it's because God wants to show and John wants to underscore that Jesus really is the king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world represented here by these foreigners, these, these Gentiles. In verse 19, the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him. And immediately that quote-unquote prophecy is fulfilled. Some Greeks are, in fact, going after him. So John's revealed to us that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really did come into the world to be the king of Israel. That's why he got on the donkey and fulfilled Zechariah 9. But Jesus is more, more than just the Jewish Messiah, more than just the King of Israel. He is the King of the world. And for those of you who now have a mental image of Leonardo DiCaprio on the prow of the Titanic, and you can't get rid of it, I'm sorry, but that's the image that I have as well. Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way, is not. <clears throat> Jesus is the king over all the nations and all the cities and all the neighborhoods, including Jerusalem and Rome and Annapolis and Crofton and Halethorpe and Bowie and Laurel and Odenton. People are going to go after him from all the nations and all the peoples and all the cities and all the neighborhoods. And our job, our happy job, is to lift up Jesus and witness so that he might draw all the world, including our world, to himself. So these Greeks, they're drawn to Jesus and they want to see them. But did they get to? Does Jesus show himself to them? Physically, we don't know because John doesn't say. But this may be for our sake. Because Jesus does show himself to them. 
and everyone else there the very same way he shows himself to us. And in their eyes, Jesus starts out great. He says in verse 23, so there are some Greeks who want to see me? Well, here's the truth about me that matters for Greeks and for everyone else who wants to see me and know me. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I am on my way to glory, and I really will be something to see. They're right to want to see me. I'll even pray for this, which he does in John 17, 20, that they will see my glory. I'll be the most glorious person in the universe when my Father gives me a name that is above every name, so that at my name, every knee will bow, including Jews and Greeks, which would have been for them conventional wisdom. Of course, they'd expect that. Remember, they'd just seen him welcomed into the city as the conquering hero, Israel's new king, the long-awaited Messiah. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Yes, finally, he will be glorified. And just when they think he's on the cusp of claiming his rightful place in history, Jesus departs from conventional wisdom and goes in what can only be called a very different direction. Because he follows, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified with truly, truly, I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat, grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now he's talking about death and at the same time of bearing much fruit. Clearly, he was telling the disciples and those Greeks something they probably wouldn't have understood at all. Certainly, they all stood un understood worldly success and recognized Jesus as a leader who should expect glory, but nothing you'd ever associate with death. It was impossible for them to conceive of this with the Messiah, which is why they respond in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Jesus says to them, my way to glory is through death. Do you want to see that? I will indeed bear much fruit, but I will not and cannot bear this fruit any way but through dying. If I leave the road I'm on now and try to be seen by people who simply want a glimpse of a king, I'll remain alone like a seed unplanted, not in the ground. And you won't be saved, not the Jews or the Greeks. But if I go and die on my way to glory, then I will bear much fruit. You'll be saved the Greeks will be saved. And everyone who receives me by faith will be saved. Thanks be to God. Do they want to see me? Well, this is what I want them to see. See me dying. Then see me bearing fruit. That's the truth about himself that Jesus reveals to the Greeks and to us. But the truth about him also becomes the truth about them and about us. He says in verse 25 and 26, my dying for your salvation is also my design for your following. If you want to see me, be prepared to become like me. Prepare to follow me on the road I'm on. He who loves his life loses it. 
And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where? To the cross and to the grave. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. Where? In the presence of my Father in glory. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus begins with truth about himself. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and this will happen as a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. Then he makes the truth about himself a truth about us. Will we hate our lives in this world? Will we follow him on the path to the cross? Will we serve the Son in this way? Will we identify with the one we're so eager to see? Will we let the truth about Jesus become truth about us? So we get a chance to see Jesus the same way the Greeks did, by his word and action. He says, I'm going to glory. I'm going to bear much fruit. And the way I'm going is by hating my life in this world, by suffering and dying for you. And then he says, follow me. Die with me. Hate your life in this world with me. Serve me. And if we're paying attention, two things become unmistakably clear about Jesus' call to discipleship, to, to following him. It's incredibly hard. And it's astoundingly glorious. And we shouldn't miss either of these, the hard and the glorious, because if we only see the hard part, we'll miss the power and freedom that Jesus promises and if we only see the glorious part, we'll minimize the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to. So here are four incredibly hard things we see about following Jesus. And I will say that none of these fits our culture's conventional wisdom in any way. But here they are. Verse 24, the grain of wheat must die. Unless the grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, is what Jesus said. This is incredibly hard. Verse 25, Jesus calls us to hate our lives in this world, which is incredibly strong language, but it's his language. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it. This is incredibly hard. Verse 26, Jesus calls us to follow him on his Calvary road, leading to death. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. This is incredibly hard. And again, in verse 26, he calls us to serve him. If anyone serves me, to take the role of a servant at his table, to do his bidding, no matter what the demand or how lowly the status. Well, this is incredibly hard. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus knew it would be incredibly hard. That's why he said in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who will find it are few. It's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. It's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross. And it's hard to take the role of a servant in a world that is obsessed with power but it's also astoundingly glorious. And in fact, 
the glory Jesus promises more than compensates for the hardness of it all. The glory can actually transform the hardness into the most significant life imaginable. So, here are four astoundingly glorious things Jesus promises here. Verse 24, yes, the seed must die, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. The death is not in vain, it's significant. It bears fruit. Verse 25, yes, if we love our life, we will lose it. And yes, we must hate our life in this world. But why? What will be the outcome? That we may keep it to eternal life. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. What we lay down for Christ will be put into our hands a hundredfold with glory. You cannot out-sacrifice his generosity. 3, verse 26, yes, we must follow him to Calvary, but with what outcome? And where I am, there shall my servant also be. Jesus used those same words another time in John 14, 13. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. If we follow him to Calvary, we will join him in glory. And finally, yes, we must become his servants. But what does the Father do with his servants? The last part of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So don't miss the glory in the hard life of discipleship. We die. And following Christ is a kind of death. And then we bear much fruit. We hate our lives in this world and we keep them for eternal life. We follow Jesus on the road to the cross and we join him in his glory. We become his servants and the Father honors us. Jesus shows us who he is, what he's going to do and what it will mean and he bids us Join him. His dying for our salvation is also his design for our following. It won't be easy, but it will be significant. It will be eternal. That's true for our lives individually, and it's true for us as a community pursuing our shared vision together, proclaiming and promoting the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors with all that means will be hard. But it will also be glorious in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.